I'd like to invite Tuck to come on up now. It's my pleasure to introduce to you the Reverend Canon Dr. Tuck Bartholomew. Um, Tuck is the new canon for church planting here in the Diocese of the Atlantic. Tuck, we're so glad that you've joined us this morning. Thanks. It's good to be with you this morning. I uh, enjoyed the outdoors this morning, my first open air preaching. A lot of fun. And now it's nice to be in the air conditioning. <laughs> Will you uh, pray with me? Our Father in heaven, already as we've gathered for worship this morning, we've acknowledged that our hearts are open before you and that nothing is hidden with regard to our lives. You see all, you know all. So we ask now that as we come to give our attention to your word, that you would penetrate our hearts and that you would help us to have the kind of openness that lets us receive the things you have to say and not only receive them and believe them, but become doers of the word as we've all prayed as well. So meet us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In this time, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, Mike reached out and said, hey, you know, you're moving back to Virginia. We just moved to Charlottesville last week. And uh, would you like to come preach at Truro? And I said, sure. And he said, we're doing Ephesians. And I said, that's fantastic. Ephesians is a beautiful book. It's one of my favorite epistles of Paul. Lots of wonderful grand themes about the church and about the heavenly blessing, about the tearing down of dividing walls, and on and on and on Ephesians goes. I said, so what's the text? He said, slaves and masters. <laughs> I said, thank you. So there are some texts in scripture when it's effortless that we find those words on our tongue, thanks be to God. And there are those other parts of scripture that feel more remote and foreign and difficult and challenging. And you get to that part of the liturgy in which we say, thanks be to God, and we're wondering why we're saying it. And this is one of those texts, at least on the surface. And I hope that by the end of our time this morning that you'll think, actually, it is a moment for thanks be to God. So I was actually delighted to speak on the household codes, at least even this portion of the household codes, one of the more challenging portions for sure. And it's for this very simple reason, that it's so easy for us as Christians to live in our heads and to assert sort of our beliefs and our confess our faith and so on and so forth, and to even sort of take on these grand themes of God's love for us and think about what it might mean for us to finally sort of believe deep down in the innermost being that we are dearly beloved children of God. But it's easy for those thoughts to stay internal and it's easy for those thoughts to stay in our head or even on our lips and not actually come into the space of embodiment. And the household codes sort of are a place where the rubber hits the road, at least in the Roman culture and the Roman society because that's what these codes are built out of. And it's a space in which the Apostle Paul, I believe, engages in some of the most winsome and careful pastoral care of this early, early moment of the Christian church. And if we're to understand how the Lord continues to pastor us in our day, in the complexity of our society, the complexity of our historical moment, we need these very simple words to help us understand what was Paul thinking? What was he doing? How is he helping this church that almost certainly struggled in these places of relationship to show love, how is he helping them do so? 
so that we might learn to do so in our own lives and our own relationships. So now over the last couple of weeks, Mike and Jamie have taken the easy parts of the household codes. Thank you. Um, but one of the things they've been careful to point out is that these codes don't just sort of pop up out of nowhere. They're an extension, a practical extension of really everything else that you've been studying in this great book of Ephesians up to now. At the beginning of chapter five, the apostle Paul sort of begins to sort of unearth this expansive imagination for humanity. What would it look like if people that have come to believe that Jesus was the one in whom God was bringing the kingdom of God into our earthly existence, what would it look like if we actually were imitators of God, if we were actually walking in the manner of love with which we've been loved, right, as dearly beloved children? What would that look like on earth then? And that's where Paul goes with this. There are two humanities, we could say, all share the image of God, but the church is the community of those individuals that are being renewed in the likeness of God's own self. And so we're meant to sort of reveal the life of heaven. We pray this every week when we pray the Lord's Prayer, and we ask that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this, and we seek this, we desire this, and the question is, how might this happen? At verse 18 in chapter 5, Paul gives this familiar analogy of drunkenness to get his point across that there are two human, human populations. The one is a population drunk on the wine of this world or the spirit of this age. We could even say in their context, the spirit of the Roman Empire. We might say in our own context, the spirit of the American Empire. We could just go on and on about all the ways in which we might be malformed out of the brokenness of this world rather than heaven come to earth in the person of Jesus. So Paul encourages us to be that community that God has in fact breathed new life into, the life of the Spirit. And we're to live under that influence of the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God mediated to us in everyday life. So what does that look like? Well, it looks like verse 21, mutual submission, right? Not grasping for one's self, right, at one's life. In other words, this was the story of Jesus. The apostle Paul would say this in the, in the great book of Ephesians, in which he would just simply say that Jesus, though God, did not grasp at his godness. And so here he's saying for us to not be graspers, but to be persons that leverage the fullness of who we are for the sake of our neighbor. We would love as we've been loved. It's a remarkable vision that Paul sets before the church as the aftermath, the overflow of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension and the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. But Paul doesn't leave us with that journal statement, right? We're not just sort of living in our heads in a generality saying, go, go figure out how to do this. He looks out and or he imagines almost certainly the community that's gathered in one of the homes, right, in Ephesus. This is where the church would have naturally met. And he looks about them in his imagination and he knows that there in that home there would be who? Husbands, wives, children, fathers, mothers, slaves, masters. What does mutual love look like among that motley crew? What does it look like for them who inhabit the Roman ideals of all of those positions 
that almost certainly was a hierarchy that included dehumanizing distance from one another and almost certainly often even abuses of power. You can imagine this moment of being in the church that day and the letter is being read maybe for the very first time and you're sitting there and maybe you're the wife or maybe you're a slave or maybe you're a child, a son, a daughter, a father, a mother. Just imagine your place in that community in that moment and you hear these words of the Apostle Paul sort of and you're thinking, what does mutuality look like for me? You can imagine how awkward that moment might have been for the very first time. The church was far from segregated at the time. The early days of the church, that gathering would have included everyone that Paul is referencing in the room at the same time. Before I get into some of the things that I think Paul would have us understand of his wisdom here, I want to just admit that Christians and the church historically has not lived well with these verses. I think it's important for us just to draw attention to it. We fail miserably. Very often I've seen these verses used a little bit like a hammer, right? So when someone that's a subordinate to us in some role or space in life, we imagine that what we're to do with these verses is to call people to get in line. And so we use these texts to hammer away. And the abuse is perpetuated. But I think if we perceive Paul to be giving us a prescriptive structure for the hierarchy of a home then or now, that we're not really listening to Paul very well. We're not hearing the subversive content that he's actually giving us in these important verses. And sometimes, let me say this too, we are frustrated, particularly at this part of the household code, right? Because we live in a certain time in history, in a certain cultural context, country context, democratic context. Many changes have happened. Many changes are yet to happen that need to happen. And yet many of us look on these words and we think, well, Paul, why couldn't you have just been a little more straightforward? Why didn't you say, hey, stop doing slavery? Paul doesn't say that because my guess is it wasn't actually fully in his imagination or something is the work of the church. The church was a small organization at the time, just beginning to get its feet under itself, just learning what it means to be the body of Christ in the world and the context in which the church existed of the day. There just weren't the kinds of legislative opportunities that we take for granted, frankly, in our context. We need to let Paul be Paul and in the context that he's pastoring, let him pastor that context and then draw wisdom from what he's doing. So let's think about a few things. The first is this, is that we should just observe and note that the very first group of individuals in this section of the household codes that Paul addresses are the slaves. He speaks to them before he speaks to the masters. And while that on our hearing might not seem like a huge deal because it happens very close together anyway, we might not think much of it. But in that time and in that place, in that particular context, we need to understand the enormous social political and economic misstep that the Apostle Paul has made. He has seen the unseen. He has looked first upon those members of the congregation that within society and the hierarchy of society are most likely to be overlooked and not seen at all. Not valued, devalued. But Paul says, I see you. I know you're there. 
I affirm your faith. I affirm your humanity. This is so important. And more importantly, Paul seems to be saying, Jesus sees you. We shouldn't be surprised. This is where Paul goes. Because the God of the Bible, if we learn anything about him through the story of Israel, it is that he is the God who is attentive to those that have not. He is the God who sees Israel in a space of its own enslaved existence. And he comes into that burning bush moment and he calls Moses to the challenge and the task, the vocation of being the deliverer, right? The emancipator of his people out of Egypt, that they might be worshipers of God. God hears the cry of his enslaved people and he comes down. And we're living in a greater moment than Moses' moment. We live in the aftermath of Jesus in whom God has come most intimately and most vulnerably into the sphere of human life. His feet have touched the ground. He's seen with his own eyes the enslaved, the have-nots, the people that are excluded in terms of his own moment in history. And so Paul here begins to do the work of lifting the story of the slave out of the narrative of Roman culture. And he situates the identity of that individual in Christ firmly. And he urges them to understand themselves in terms of who Jesus is and in terms of how Jesus sees them. He reminds them of their dignity, their agency in life, even in their work, which almost certainly if you're working in that type of an unjust economic situation, you don't view your work as your work, the handiwork of your hands, but you view your work as something that's done for another. Paul affirms the value of their work, their labor in the ward, and he urges them to sort of reorient their identity and themselves, their calling to Christ. This is not a call to passivity at all, I don't think. It's not a simply a call to say, you know, hey, wait, things are going to get better. This is not pie in the sky by and by. That is not at all what's going on in this particular moment. It is rather a moment of transformation because Paul understands them as they are in Christ and he wants to impart to these individuals that may likely, simply because of their earthly context, not value themselves. So he urges them to sort of inhabit their work differently, not with manipulative paces or practices, but rather to entrust the story of their lives, as painful as it is, to God who is actually with them in their circumstances. The civil rights activist Ruby Sales says that black folk religion that emerged in the American South in the days of slavery and actually extended into the modern period during periods of continued racism and segregation actually was a moment in which the African-American in that situation could learn a very different story than the narrative of the master, than the narrative of the American South, than even sometimes the narrative of the official church. They were able in that space to remember and understand that they were fully human, bearers of the image and likeness of God, filled with dignity, of value, of worth, even as they heard the other narrative going on around them. The urging was that they would not be drunk on the wine of the broken world, but be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and so be transformed in the way they live life. Paul does that here. 
I think, he lifts the slave story into the story of Jesus so that those individuals that are most prone to the abuses of a system that was very prone to abuse might actually understand their primary identity is that they belong body and soul to Jesus who has loved them and who has redeemed them, who has filled them with renewal in their own lives. They would see that they are loved by God. I am a person. I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm a son, I am a daughter. The second thing Paul does here is he does speak to masters. He relativizes their position as he speaks to them. I think it's important to sort of notice that that's what's happening in this particular space of discourse. He simply says, masters do the same to them, which is a remarkable turn of phrase if you think about it. Paul says to those in authority, mirror the life of your slave. Be like them. Serve them. It's unheard of. Paul urges them to leverage their resources on behalf of the work of another so that they might thrive as persons. Persons with power need to be humanized too. Because the way in which we live with power very often leaves those of us that live with privilege having a very distorted sense of what it means to be a human being. Wendell Berry says in his book, The Hidden Wound, in which he's reflecting on his own participation in the life of racism in this country, that he realized at a certain point that it was so very important that he attend to that story differently than he was attending to it. Because even though he was a white man, is a white man, that he still was affected by the wound of racism. And he needed to grow up out of it and find healing by looking at it more intensely. And that's what Paul calls these particular masters to do in their particular context. To find their own story retold by the person of who Jesus was. Who, though God didn't grasp, but humbled himself and became a servant. These, I think, are some of Paul's most subversive words that you'll read in the New Testament letters, if you have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. It's also possible that then, as listeners were listening in, that they were drunk on the spirit of the Roman culture. And it's possible that we're drunk on the spirit of our own culture, and we don't always hear what Paul is saying or how God is calling us to disrupt, taken for granted of our world, that we might actually grow up into the likeness of a child of God, a son, a daughter of the God who loves us. So let me ask you this question. How do you live with your relative privilege? I put it that way because we are not equal in our privilege at all, but we are in Fairfax, Virginia, Northern Virginia. We're in a part and segment of society and a space of demographic in which you're privileged. You just are. But the question is, how do you hold the power that you have? How do you live with it? Do you grasp selfishly? Or do you, with open hands, let it spill out into the world and relationships around you? Let me share a story. This comes out of my own experience of hierarchy in the workplace. So I'm a pastor, and I've been a pastor for about 30 years, something like that. And um, it's the workspace that I know the best. Now, here's the thing, the awful truth, right, is that we sure wish that uh, the church never had a problem with this, right? I mean, I wish that. You wish that. We all wish that the church was a place that not only 
had the beautiful liturgy of the gospel in which we're just reminded over and over and over again about the story of God's love for us in Christ. And then we effortlessly move to embody that in our church context. But the reality is the church is a pretty broken place. We struggle with the same things that the Apostle Paul was preaching about here in this particular moment. Now, on one occasion, I was in a conversation with a friend of mine who's a senior pastor. And this senior pastor was struggling with the staff of his church because they were grumbling. They weren't happy. And it was clear that they weren't happy because, you know, when someone's not happy, you hear about that squeaky wheel, right? We hear it. We hear the stories. So there was a lot of frustration. They were unhappy with different aspects of the structure of the church, different aspects of who reported to whom, and on and on and on it went. And this particular individual just very earnestly said to me as he was relaying his own frustrations with the circumstance in which he was working as a leader, right? He said, you know, I think that if the staff just could hear the gospel, that they would be okay with not being more affirmed. They'd be okay with their hard circumstance. They'd be able to endure it a little bit differently. Now, you see where this is going, don't you? From his vantage point as the minister in charge, he mostly saw the failures of everyone else. He mostly looked at the subordinates He looked at the staffing structure, and he saw all the ways in which they were not embodying the love with which they've been loved. And it's certainly true, there's no doubt, that when I wake up to the love of God more deeply, as the source of my ultimate peace and my ultimate happiness and my ultimate sort of satisfaction, that I can more boldly endure hard things. I can live through some pretty difficult circumstances, and so can you. Jesus did all the days of his life into his own death on a cross. These are true things. But what this particular pastor was forgetting was that he was the senior minister. He was forgetting that the gospel also had a word for him. And the word was simply the question of, well, how will you live with your relative power? (laughs) How will you hold it in behalf of those that you're working with? The gospel invites us to engage God's embrace of us wherever we are. If you're on the lower end of some spectrum, if you're on the higher end of some spectrum, if you have less power than more power, the gospel invites us to become like Jesus in those places so that we love as we've been loved, so that we express toward one another the incarnation of Jesus himself. When we pray, we ask often for God's forgiveness, and this is so important, and it's important to remember that we're given it, but we also need to remember that in our prayers of confession, we're also asking for the amendment of life, that the way I go out and live today and tomorrow and the next day is a little bit different, a little bit more like a child born again of God. The kingdom of God has come in the person of Jesus. And here the Apostle Paul is inviting persons that inhabit a very broken moment of time. What if you became the expression of Jesus to your neighbor, even your subordinate neighbor? How would that change the relationship? How would it change the way you interact? How would it trickle out into society, dare we imagine, 
and change the way we actually have ordered work. So let me ask you this. How do you think about God? When you imagine his calling to you in your life, and we must because if you jump back up to verse 21, that is the place where Paul says, first introduces this notion of mutual love and mutual submission one to another in reverence for Christ, in awe of Christ. Do you stand in awe of the way Jesus has loved you? Paul did. Jesus said that when we pray, we pray our Father. It's a word of intimacy. He says by the Spirit, the Apostle Paul would say, by the Holy Spirit, we cry out to God, not just formally Father, but Daddy. In other words, we're meant to understand that when we approach God, we're not manipulating him into bringing his kingdom. He delights to bring his kingdom. When we approach God, we're not trying to persuade him of our arguments about what we imagine to be a good thing. He imagines a greater good thing. And he delights when we begin to tap into the things he delights in. God is crazy about you. We chuckle, right? Because it feels so foreign to imagine a God who would look on me or look on you and say... I absolutely delight in you. And I can't wait to see how you begin to live life today. How you live out of this delight. How you let it change the way you speak to your wife. How you let it change the way you approach and engage your husband. How you let it affect the way you interact, parent, child. How you let it affect your workspaces. In John 15... Jesus says, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for one's friends. And you are my friends. Go and bear fruit, the fruit of the kingdom that will last. The Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. The Father delights to give us this kingdom of God. In these words of Ephesians, Paul is pastoring a church that they might live into this impossible vision of the kingdom come. He dismantles inequalities and abuses as they would have existed in his day, in marriages, in parenting, and in slavery. Jesus has come to disrupt our taken-for-granted way of being in the world so that we would live a different kind of humanity that mirrors the likeness of Christ in our world. Now, Paul knows that the church will fail. Here's how I know that. Because the next verses in Ephesians that you will look at next week are all about spiritual warfare. Paul has just taken sort of the deep dive into some of the hardest spaces of the church. He's talked about impossible love, and he knows it's impossible. And so the next text, he's going to move us to think about how our struggle with this love, our struggle with a life of repentance, our struggle with a life of faith, takes shape and place in the context of the great cosmic spiritual battle. But have no fear, because Jesus has overcome the world. May God give us grace to live and to walk in love as we have been loved by Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.